fellowship with you. Uh, I've enjoyed being with the Lord's people here in Loughborough. Um, Seth has explained it will be roughly um, half and half the time. First of all, looking in God's word, meditation on this chapter. Then we'll have a hymn in the middle. And then slightly longer um, on uh, more detail about Reach Across that will hope, hopefully fuel your prayers later on. So if you could turn with me then to um, Genesis chapter 16. Can I just ask you what you really think about Muslims? No need to answer, but think about them for a moment. What do you feel about them deep down? Are you a bit wary, a bit suspicious, even a bit afraid of them? Do you justifiably feel a righteous anger about those Muslims who show hatred and violence? Well, so does God. But do you also love and pity Muslims like God does? I want to speak this evening for a little while about Hagar, the Egyptian slave girl of Abraham and Sarah. I hope it's okay to call them Abraham and Sarah. We know their names changed. I'm used to that. Hagar and her son Ishmael are, many scholars believe, distant ancestors of many Muslim peoples today. God loves them, I believe, as he does all peoples. And I think Hagar's experience of God in Genesis 16 is enough to give hope to any Muslims. It gives me hope that because God loved Hagar in this way, I believe some Muslims will come to faith in the Lord Jesus. And if they can, anyone can. Well, what is my evidence then that Hagar became a true believer with saving faith in God? Maybe before we actually get to that, we need to think about the background to these verses, don't we? Remember God had revealed himself to Abram and promised that he will be the father of many nations. God told him that he'd have so many descendants that trying to count them will be like trying to count the stars in the universe or the sand on the seashore. Problem was that he was very old at this time and Sarah herself was barren. Yet because God had promised this, Abraham believed God. And we know the New Testament tells us that his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. He was saved through faith in God. Now sadly, even though they were believers, nobody comes out from this story with great testimonies, do they? A few years passed. Abram and Sarah believed that maybe they should hurry along God's promises a bit. Wouldn't it help God out somewhat if Abram had a baby by their slave girl, Hagar? Now, of course, Sarah was very wrong to even suggest that because it was doubting God's promise. I think it was cowardly of Abram not to give spiritual leadership to his wife and say, darling, no, God has promised. Let's trust him. And when Hagar became pregnant, she was spiteful in treating her mistress with contempt. 
Sarah was hypocritical in trying to shift all the blame on Abram and then dealing so harshly with Hagar. And of course, lastly, Hagar was just wrong to run away. But in grace and love, God sends an angel to speak to Hagar. And through the angel, God reveals something of who he is. Actually, verse 13, if you look at it, it says it was the Lord who spoke to her. That's in capital letters. That means it's the name Yahweh or Jehovah by which God revealed himself to Abraham. And she understood that this was no ordinary angel. In fact, she calls him the God who sees. So this was a theophany. It was an appearance of God. But I'm convinced it was also a Christophany, an appearance of the Son of God before he became the incarnate promised seed and became a man. Well, Hagar's response is to ask with amazement, have I also here seen him who sees me? I think that's a statement of faith. And I want to unpack that for a few minutes um, and think about what she believed concerning God. Three things, briefly, and then three short applications of that. So let's backtrack a bit. Firstly, he is the God who finds. He's the God who finds. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. Hagar probably knew the whereabouts of this spring and had deliberately made her way there, otherwise she knew she'd die of thirst. But she was no doubt feeling lost, alone, wondering where to go next. But it's as the Lord found her. Well, it wasn't that God didn't know where she was. The Lord, after all, sees all things. And the way the angel addresses Hagar in verse 8 is full of gentle irony, isn't it? Look at it, uh, verse 8. Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? God knew exactly where she was. She was trying to run away, but she couldn't run away from God. Remember Jonah, the reluctant missionary? He found that out after he'd bought a ticket on a ship sailing in the opposite direction to where God had told him to go. And God was there on the boat exposing his desertion. There with him, even inside the belly of a great fish, answering his distress. David makes clear in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omniscient. He knows all things. We cannot ultimately run away from God. Not only had she been found, she'd been found out. She had to be confronted, not only about her sinful reaction to Sarai, but also that God is a holy God 
who is real, who is alive, who does see us. So I'm saying this evening that the Lord, yes, looks down from heaven and sees mankind. He, he sees the sin. He sees the wickedness perpetrated by sections of Islam. But he sees our rebellion. He sees our running away from God. And yet in grace, he pursues us. It is our duty to seek the Lord while he may be found. But isn't it a wonderful relief to know that all along he was even using our trials, even our disobedience, to make sure that he found us. I like how the hymn writer puts it, anonymous hymn writer. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Saviour, true. No, I was found of thee. And then the hymn writer, in an allusion to Peter walking towards Jesus, says, Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. It was not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me. He's the God who finds. Now let's see how that worked out in Hagar's experience because secondly, he's the God who hears. Of course, for God to see all things by being present everywhere means that he hears all things. You know, these are anthropomorphisms, we call them. A way of describing God in human terms. Of course, God is spirit. He doesn't have physical ears except in the Lord Jesus. He doesn't have physical eyes except in the Lord Jesus. So in verse 11... We read, the angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael. If you have a little reference in your Bible, you know that 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 Hebrew word means God hears. For the Lord has heard of your misery. And there are actually some translations, I think the ESV is one that says that the Lord listened. There's a difference between hearing and listening, isn't there? God doesn't just hear, he takes note of us. He listens. God must have seen the injustice of all that had happened to Hagar, as well as her own folly, her outbursts, her disrespectful words, her rash words, and and no doubt... Hagar would have prayed something like this. God, if you're there, please help me. God listened. And God knows your afflictions this evening. He he understands what you're going through. And there is a sense in which God understands more now than he did then. What do I mean by that? Well, God became flesh and lived among us. Hebrews 4 verse 15 tells us we do not have a high priest who is unable to 
empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let me ask a question that might seem so simple, it's not worth asking, but it is. If you're in trouble, have you asked God for help? Or have you been trying to get through it all by yourself? You know, that is the religion of self-effort. God insists on saving us on his own terms, by grace alone, through faith alone in him. We need to confess, in the words of the hymn perhaps, not the labour of my hands can fulfil thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? And we're going to be thinking about Muslim zeal later on. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone, naked in nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I, to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. So, I don't know you this evening, and I I don't know what you're going through, some of you, but if you're in any trouble tonight, call out to him. He's especially tender to those who are his children and to his cries. I mentioned my son um, this morning, who lives in Derby. After my son's wife had given birth to their third son, Gabriel, they called him. He is, he is an angel. But my son said to me one day that I'm not sleeping very well because Gabriel has been in some distress. So I've got one ear open listening to his cries and I'm ready to hand Gabriel to his mother to feed. Let me tell you that our father never slumbers. He never sleeps. He doesn't need to. He's listening for us. Jonah could testify, in my distress I call to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I call for help and you listened to my cry. He's the God who finds, he's the God who hears and thirdly, here is the focus of the chapter, I think, he's the God who sees. God who sees. Verse 13 then, is more or less Hagar's confession of faith. It says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Again, there are some translations that translate that, the one who looks after me. So she realized that God had seen her, heard her, found her, had been looking out for her all along. And I think to acknowledge God's grace and love like that is an expression of true faith. Of course, any confession of faith for it to be genuine has to go hand in hand with contrition. Faith isn't true faith 
if it doesn't include repentance. So when God tells her to go back to Sarai and submit to her authority as her mistress, she obeyed. because She knew it was God speaking to her. I wonder then, is, is God speaking to any of us at this present time about something you know you need to repent of? Or you know you need to do something so that God can see that your faith is real. Well, there at the well, she found much more than H2O. Her spiritual thirst, her deep longing was quenched when she met the living Lord. Doesn't this story remind you very much of another woman? At a well. The New Testament, of course, that, that woman who was so ashamed of her sin, she went to draw water at the hottest time of the day when nobody else would be there probably in John chapter 4. The Lord Jesus knew she'd be there and he went out of his way to find her and talk to her on her own. And Jesus exposes her sin so that she would confess and so that she would be found by him. And she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Jesus had compassion on her. Whoever drinks the water I give them, he says, will never thirst. You see, she heard the voice of Jesus say, behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one, stoop down and drink and live. Can you say, I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched. My soul revived. And now I live in him. She found the Lord, or rather the Lord found her, listened to her, heard her saw her, and I believe she has saving faith in the God who saves. Now, three brief applications. First of all, of course, God wants to find you. Is there somebody here this evening and you're trying to run away from God, trying to hide from him, maybe by suppressing the truth, maybe by ignoring the truth, Pretending that your sin doesn't matter, as the world thinks, but it does. Our sin offended God so much that he sent Jesus to become that promised seed of Abraham. And he died for your sin, so you could be forgiven and your shame be removed and be in a living relationship with God that lasts forever. So I'm asking you this evening, Let him find you. Let him find you. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Stop proudly trying to make it through life on your own. Trying to justify yourself. Tell him you're sorry. And thank him for dying for your sins. Are you thirsty? This uh, pandemic has really caused us to think, what's life all about, hasn't it? Jesus says, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow 
rivers of living water. He is the spring that you need to come to to wash away your sins and to satisfy your deepest longing. Here's the second application. It's about Muslims, really. You know, Muslims actually know that God sees them. They know that. And that's what terrifies them. This is what Muslims find so difficult. They're brought up to believe that in order to be saved, all their good deeds must outweigh all their bad deeds. And they never have any assurance about facing the day of judgment. For Muslims do believe in angels. They believe that there is one angel on their left shoulder watching everything they do, recording their bad deeds. And there's another angel at their right shoulder recording their good deeds. And and most are deeply afraid that their good deeds will never outweigh the bad. And you know, Muslims do pray. They never get through to God because they don't come in the name of the Lord Jesus. But there are Muslims throughout the world tired of what's happening to them, weary of wickedness and violence, tired of their afflictions, tired of what has been done in the name of their religion. And some are crying out to God. We trust in sincerity. And Muslims know God hears them because he knows everything. But they're never sure that God will answer their prayers. They're never sure that God will be merciful to them. And Muslims need to be found by God today. We do hear reports from time to time of the risen Jesus appearing to Muslims in dreams. And he does still send angels today. Do you know what they're called? They're called messengers. That's what an angel is, a messenger. And today they are missionaries. They're bearers of good news. So please would you pray that God will raise up workers who'll be there. Muslims have these dreams and they want to know what they mean. Pray that Missionaries will be there who bravely tell Muslims God loves them because of Jesus, Isa al-Masih, Jesus the Messiah. I mentioned this morning um, one of my heroes, I suppose we shouldn't have heroes really, Jesus is our hero, isn't he? But one of my heroes, Samuel Zvena, um, long dead of course, But about a hundred years ago, Samuel Zwema advised against stereotyping Muslims. He urged Christians, and I'm going to quote him now, to awaken sympathy, love and prayer on behalf of the Islamic world until its bonds are burst, its wounds healed, its sorrows removed, and its desires satisfied in Jesus Christ. But thirdly, and and this, this applies to all of us, if you have seen, by faith, the one who sees you, what are you doing to tell others about that awesome thing? 
You know God. Are you telling others about that? There is a North African proverb that goes like this. The greatest crime in the desert is finding water and not telling anybody else. J.C. Ryle, Bishop of Liverpool, again, over a hundred years ago, he said this, It may well be questioned whether a man knows the value of the gospel himself if he does not desire it to be made known to the entire world. And it's certainly true of the woman at the well in John 4, isn't it? She couldn't keep the good news to herself. It says in John 4, many of the Samaritans from that time believe in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. It's almost as if it's the New Testament equivalent of uh, Hagar's statement of faith, I've seen God who sees me. He told me everything. I do often wonder what reception Hagar had as she went back initially and shared her experience of faith with the rest of Abraham's family. I think it it would have been very mixed, wouldn't it? We know eventually they believed her because we have it written down. Muslims, as you know today, can be terribly persecuted by their families and and need courage, and, and hopefully we'll be praying for that a little bit later on. But when they do become believers, they're a great challenge to us, to our lukewarmness and fear. What are we doing to share the gospel with those close to us, with our neighbours, with our workmates, with our children even? That's your Jerusalem. I think only then can we contemplate going to the ends of the earth and say with John, we've seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. And may the Lord encourage us, strengthen us to be those that tell people we've seen the Lord. We found, he's found us and he loves us. And forgiven our sins. Amen. Let, let's pray and then we'll sing a song together. Gracious Father, thank you for your wonderful plan of salvation that you would prepare a people, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and all their seed, but all pointing forward to that one seed who would come, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Thank you that you love the world so much that you gave up your one and only, only begotten Son, that we should not perish but have everlasting life. What a wonderful, thrilling thing that we can belong to the God of the universe. So, please bless us for the rest of this evening. Help us to be those who witness to this truth with our families, with those near to us, and we trust also help to reach those who are far away in different parts of the world. We ask it in the Saviour's name. Amen. Just before we look at uh, um, the PowerPoint, we're going to sing. Again, uh, I think we're to stand and um, sort of mouth the words, not, not sing them out loud. 
or at least enter into them. It's, it's come thou fount of every blessing. And I hope um, the tune you like, it's one of my favourite tunes, but a wonderful hymn. One or two of the slides are going to be the same as, as this evening, but ho hopefully there'll be new things uh, for us to, to learn and to see. Um, let me remind you, um, you didn't know, I know some of you, that it was Trinity Sunday, um, the day after Pentecost Sunday, and I tried to explain this morning that it's the, the God of the Trinity who's involved in mission. Father, Son, and Spirit. And this is certainly true, isn't it, in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So it, it, we go to all nations. There's going to be, in heaven, people from every tribe and nation and language. And we concentrate on helping Muslims follow Jesus. We, we can't make Muslims follow Jesus. God's work. But he uses us. Um, I'd like us to think a little bit about the Islamic faith and Muslims. Um, I like to think 
of Muslims, the way the Apostle Paul uh, thought about his fellow Jew, although I've I'm, I'm got no Islamic background. He said of them in Romans 10 verse 2 about Jews, they have a zeal for God, very religious, but not according to knowledge, not true knowledge. And this is certainly true of Islam. You probably know that their faith is summed up in what is known as the, the five pillars of Islam. First is the Shahada, or that's their statement of faith. And if you confess this with your mouth, it makes you a Muslim. Now, just because I say it doesn't make me a Muslim. La ilaha illallah wa Muhammad Rasulallah. There's no God but Allah. Muhammad is his prophet or Allah's prophet. That is their, what they believe and makes you a Muslim. The second pillar is called Salat or prayers. And many Muslims pray five times a day. And I think it puts us to shame a bit, doesn't it? When we struggle sometimes to pray every day. All right, it's just religion with them. Nevertheless, they want to make the effort to connect with God. And it's very zealous. The third pillar is zakat or charity. It's the duty of every Muslim to give two and a half percent of their salary, their wages to the mosque or to charitable foundations. I often have a little joke with Muslims and say, well, we, we give a tithe, we give 10% and they're very impressed by that, although we don't stick to that law, do we? But we want to give from our heart out of love, not because we're forced to. Fourthly, the fourth pillar, saum, fasting. Not long since Muslims finished Ramadan, and this is one of the um, sayings of Islam, Ramadan is a time to empty your stomach, to feed your soul. So at least they recognize that there is a higher being and they have a soul. And uh, they're zealous to be able to connect with God. The fifth pillar is what they call the Hajj, or the pilgrimage to Mecca in Saudi Arabia. And if you are if you are a good Muslim, at least once in your lifetime, you'll make that pilgrimage to Saudi Arabia. This is a picture of a house actually in East Jerusalem. And this is a Muslim's house, and these squiggles are congratulatory comments from neighbors congratulating the man who's been on the Hajj. If you go on the Hajj, that wipes away the sins of your life. Um, I often want to ask them, well, what about the the next lot of sins that you commit, what do you do about those? Some people, some Muslims, believe there is a sixth pillar called jihad, um, or holy war, and some take that very, very literally and want to wage war on people like us, infidels, who don't follow Islam. But if you speak to many Muslims, they'll tell you that it, actually the jihad is the inner struggle to know God, to get close to God. And so you can see there's a real zeal for God, isn't there? But not with knowledge. For we believe this in Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, not through good works. That's like a treadmill that will 
never ever overcome. I mentioned this this morning, that we need to show pity for Muslims, the God of this world, who is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's only Jesus that can take those scales from their eyes. And we, we, we were like that. So let's, let's have some pity for them. One of the men who first appreciated the need to go to Muslims was, of course, William Carey. And to a gathering of pastors in 1792, he spoke of the need to reach the 130 million, as there were then, followers of Muhammad. Of course, eventually, he went to Hindus as well, in fact, mainly. But what drove him initially was the, the lost Muslims. And there was a, an objection from another minister who was there. And he said, but have we not task enough to engage us with the heathen at home? Like all the way over there. And this is what Carey said. There are indeed thousands of our fellow countrymen living as far from God as possible. We ought to be tenfold more eager than we are to win them for Christ. But the news is at least within their hearing. And in almost every part of the land, there are faithful ministers. If the home church wakened, the home heathen could be won. But pagan lands have neither true Bible nor true ministers. Multitudes of neither a written language nor decent government nor any of our chief blessings. And he went in obedience to Christ. So we help Muslims follow Jesus. Why then? Well, um, I showed you a pie chart this morning. Let me just put it in figures for you. There are 17,000 different people groups in the world. A people group is a group of people with a common language and history and culture and a way of living together. Um, and of course, in some parts of the world, like Papua New Guinea, there are Hundreds of different people groups. Well, there's going to be a representative from every one of them in heaven. And so we need to go to all of them. And so 6,000 plus are unreached by the gospel. There will be some believers there, but so the church is so small. They need our help to reach the rest of their people group. And of those, about a half are Muslim. About a half of them are Muslims. It's quite a challenge, isn't it? Quarter of the world's population, 1.8 billion Muslims. Most Muslims have never met a true Christian. A true Christian. And I find this statistic staggering. Bearing in mind what a missionary is, and I'm sure most missionaries are doing a great work, but less than 3% of missionaries work amongst Muslims, taking the gospel to the least reached. And to me that's a challenge. Now, in our organization, the, the man that first really realized that as the founder of our mission, a man called Dr. Lionel Gurney, um, an amazing guy, never actually married, um, but uh, he was an Englishman, born in England, went when he was a teenager to Canada, was converted and trained to be a doctor specifically so he could go and be a missionary. Um, and his motto for his life was 
Not really politically correct. Islam shall hear. <laughs> and um, he, uh, he went to the area of Eritrea and Ethiopia in the 1930s and 1940s to the Red Sea area. Went to the Afar people, very warlike, proud people, were totally Muslim. Um, they are in the area just in between Ethiopia and Eritrea. And we've been working amongst them now for more than 60 years. And only just recently have a handful of them started to come to Christ. It's taken that long to reach them. What uh, Lionel Gurney did was quite amazing. He bought a big boat. Now, it is a big boat. It had a, a captain and an engineer on board. And he sailed up and down the Red Sea calling into the ports, healing the sick, preaching, and, and then moving on if there was no response. And this is even before Operation Mobilization had their idea of a ship. Um, I think the Apostle Paul had the idea before, before him, though. But that's what he did. Amazing. And uh, he formed what was called the Red Sea Mission Team. Could you put your hand up if you know or you remember that name? Out of interest, Red Sea Mission. Yes, one or two of the more mature of you, shall I say. Um, but about ten years ago, we weren't just in the Red Sea area, so we decided to change our name to Reach Across. Let me remind you again the three things we do and then expand on that. We share the gospel with Muslims, we serve them in practical ways, and we disciple them to follow Jesus. So we preach the word, usually in small groups. We Jesus said we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. I think, didn't he say love our enemies as well, though Muslims are not enemies? Uh, but we're to serve them. And, and that opens doors to be able to share the gospel. But then, of course, we want to plant churches and disciple them as groups together. And we remind you again some of the platforms that we employ in order to get into these countries. Otherwise, we won't get a visa. And let me just pause a little bit on TAFL, teaching English as a foreign language. This is an amazing tool that God has given to us. I had the privilege of uh, being in one of these classes in one of our countries. I'd, I'd never taught English in my life. And, and the, the, the class, uh, the principal said to me, we're a bit short today. Can you... Can you just take a conversation class with, with one of our groups? And I, I gulped and I said, okay. Uh, remember, she said, you cannot preach the gospel in these classes. It's for teaching English. But if they ask you a question, you're okay. You can answer. Well, I've been in the class, of, this is not this class, I've been in the class about five minutes and one young man put his hand up and said, excuse me, sir, very polite, are you a Christian preacher? Again, I gulped inside, and I, I, I knew I had to say yes. I said, yes, I am. Good, he said. We've got loads of questions we want to ask you. And for the rest of the lesson, I was just talking about Jesus and about heaven and about the Bible and about assurance. It was wonderful. And, you know, it's, does anybody have a TEFL qualification here? Yeah, great. I've just got one myself. I don't know why I've got it, but I've got one. 
Um, and it's not that difficult to get the basic teaching level. Not that difficult. And you can do it online quite cheaply. I wonder, is anybody coming up to retirement and wondering what to do? You can learn how to be a TAFL teacher and then you can go to one of our countries and be a wonderful addition to our teams who love older people and young ones as well. There's a leaflet on the table about it. I would encourage you to think about that. Of course, Bible translation, literacy, medical work. Again, let me just emphasize, if you know somebody studying medicine, we can give that person a great experience in one of our hospitals. The hospitals don't belong to the mission. We just work there. Um, and also train you how to approach Muslims, pray with Muslims by their bedside, that kind of thing, through a word with me. Helping refugees is something you're doing. I'll mention that again in a minute, but business as mission as well. Our latest Reach Across News, the uh, main article is about being a good business person in a Muslim country and using that as a kind of a, a tent maker entry into to the land. So let me ask you then, and some of you, again, who are perhaps more senior, will recognize this expression. Would you go from here to Timbuktu? One of our English expressions, isn't it? From here to Timbuktu. That is a real place in a real country. Anybody know what country it is? Mali. Well done. There it is, Mali, landlocked in Western Africa. It's one of the only countries where we can go totally Muslim and we don't need a special visa. We can put on it Christian teacher and we can get into Mali at the moment anyway. I don't know whether you realize it, but Mali has um, suffered a, a coup d'etat. Again, even since August 2020, there was one last week, um, and uh, it's causing trouble in the north of the country. And the, the um, people in charge decided to call their government the National Committee for the Salvation of the People. And would be long that that would be for true salvation, of course. Let me tell you a bit about Mali, because we, we are desperately asking the Lord for more workers for Mali. Because we've got two families retiring and if we don't get replacements, there's a danger we might have to close the program. But 95% of Malians are Muslims. Very proud of being one of the first countries in Africa to receive Islam. Um, and we particularly work amongst the unreached Suninki people in Mali. A beautiful people. Um, 2.7 million Suninki in the world. Um, 1.7 million of them in Mali, and there are at least 100,000 in Paris, um, but less than 200 Christians amongst them. And they're all scattered, mainly throughout uh, Mali, and they don't have fellowship with each other, and we're desperately trying to get them together for fellowship and Bible teaching. And when I was there a couple of years ago, I came across this poster by the side of the road. If you know French, you know it says, The Internet, in every house, peace. Uh, I'm not sure how true that is, um, but this is the drive in Mali to get everybody on the Internet. Um, 
Paul tells us the way of peace they do not know. How are they going to know that way of peace? Yes, through the internet a bit, but in Ephesians 2 verse 17, Paul says, He came, who's the he? It's Jesus. Jesus came and preached to you. But actually, it was Paul that preached to the Ephesians. And we need missionaries to go and preach the word. So Jesus can speak to the people of Mali. And we need still to be there. So we believe it's right to go and live amongst the people. To learn their language and culture. To build relationships. That's the best thing you can do with Muslims. Is to learn how to be a friend to them. Then tell the gospel to them. And we can do that in Mali quite openly. This is a book table by the roadside in Mali. We, we sell books, sell Bibles, and engage people in the gospel. It's wonderful. We still have this open door. So please pray for more missionaries for Mali. Now what is happening in Mali is a symptom, actually, of what's happening in the whole of Africa. That's a very, very broad brushstroke, but most of the countries in green are Muslim-majority countries. In the north, in the Sahel, the Sahara region. And most of the countries in the south are broadly Christianized. And what is happening is the Muslims are, are gradually pressing their way down south, often violently so, as you've seen in places like Nigeria, Burkina Faso, and now in Mali as well, and other countries. Um, and these are, of course, Islamists. Most Muslims are not warmongers. But the, the radical Muslims are, are forcing their way south. And in particular, this is happening in the land of Ethiopia. Please pray for Ethiopia. We are working amongst Eritrean refugees. We have been for several years. And we have a camp Bible school in the region of Tigray. Does that ring a bell with some of you? There's a terrible war going on in Tigray at the moment. And we have associate evangelists in these camp Bible schools. And we don't know where some of them are. And we, we're just wondering whether they're still alive. Please will you pray for the safety of uh, these dear evangelists trying to reach Muslims in Ethiopia. But what often happens is when there's a, when there's a new war, we forget the old ones. We've, we've forgotten about Syria and about Yemen. Um, Yemen is an amazing country. It used to be our biggest team until we had to leave a few years ago. An amazing country. Fantastic buildings. A lot of them have been destroyed because, of course, there is a war that's going on there. It's a forgotten war now. Half of the population are on the brink of starvation. Millions of the 20 million have terrible diseases suffering because of the war. Actually, between two different factions of Islam. They're not actually one. They're often at each other's throats. Um, and who suffers? It's the children. Yeah. Tens of thousands of children have been killed because of the war in the Yemen. And we want to go back there one day. Please will you pray tonight that the Lord would open the doors back into the Yemen. 
We have a, a lady in training with us who would love to go to the Yemen and hopefully build a team there again. So, can I remind you again that you can help helping Muslims follow Jesus needs a team, a team of people who go, a team of people who pray. Do speak to Muslims about your faith. This is very important. You know, um, when, when Muslims who come to our country to study, see what Christian young students get up to on a Friday night and a Saturday night in places like Leicester, no doubt Loughborough as well, when they see their drunkenness, their immorality, they say, well, there we, if that's Christianity, I don't want to know. I'm happy with Islam. And then they meet you at the bus stop or in the supermarket queue or in the takeaway. And you start chatting. You say, what should I say to them? How about hello? How long have you been in the country? How's your family? Do you like it? What do you do? Show an interest in them. And you'd be amazed how God, the Holy Spirit, opened doors. And they are intrigued when they find out somebody actually believes the Bible and actually prays and actually loves Jesus and wants to be holy. God can use you. Yes, we are in this country. Again, let me reiterate that if if you're interested in doing an internship with us in a, a great part of Birmingham, You'll get great training uh, and you'll be quite safe. Um, Come, there's a leaflet on the table about it. Between six weeks and 12 months is quite cheap as well. And we'd love to see you and train you. But could you go to a a Muslim land? It's often though like this. Mali is dry and poor. It's a difficult place to go. Uh, We work in some of the hottest places on earth. One place I went, uh, the temperature gauge reached, this is no exaggeration, 50 degrees Celsius. That's the shade. It's, it's hot. It's not easy. But then Jesus said, being a disciple isn't easy, is it? Um, we, we do need support for our missionaries, and that's something, please, you could consider or even pray about. Uh, but then... This is what we'd love you to do, most of all. Please pray for more workers, pray for our missionaries, and the best way you can do that is by receiving our literature. Let me just point out um, what it's like. So every three months, we could send you this in the post. It's only four pages to read, but you'll be amazed how that stimulates you to prayer. And uh, we'd send it to you free, either in the post or by internet. But to do that, we either need an email address or we need an address. And there's a, there's a, um, a form on the table. If you'd like to receive this, we'd love to send it to you and count it a privilege. So do have a look at, at the table there, please. And there are uh, old back copies there as well. And great, great books. So thank you for your fellowship. Now I'm going to show in the next, this only takes five minutes, a video. And in this video, you're going to see a woman um, who's a, a Christian missionary. She does not belong to Reach Across. I can't tell you which mission she belongs to, and I can't tell you which country. 
she was in. She's not in the country in the film anymore. But you're going to see her um, talking about sending her daughter off to boarding school. You won't see her husband. Her husband is there, but it's just her talking. And the reason I'm showing this is because these are the kind of people we need. People are zealous for Jesus, for the gospel, and are willing to give up everything and, and follow him. I do have some prayer points, which maybe we'll come back to if, if there's time. But please will you have a look now at this, um, at this video, and I hope it encourages you to pray. I just hugged my 13-year-old daughter goodbye. She's starting her first year at a great boarding school here. We're excited for her. We feel like God has provided us with the peace and the grace to face this. We feel good about this decision. But even as I walked away from her, I felt my body ache. Tomorrow, me and the rest of our family are going to board a plane and we're going to go home. Home to our dry, Islamic desert home. Where the humming is threats of kidnapping, war, and modern-day pirates. This morning as we were getting ready, I heard my, my other daughter, my 10-year-old daughter, humming something much sweeter. As she brushed her teeth, she was humming... Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Mm -hmm. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Even as I kiss my beautiful 13-year-old daughter's face and say goodbye, I don't think I pay too high a price. A woman asked me, how we balance sharing the gospel with the fear and the threat of getting in trouble. And I answered her, we share the gospel with the discernment and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and we can't worry about whether we get in trouble or not. I do live in a place where it's easy to remember that risk is certain. This is my home. Most days I feel like I live where the Wild West meets the mosque. Trouble is here. Here, where the lost welcome you with their daily hostility. Rocks are thrown at me if I walk around my neighborhood. They've put restrictions on who can come and visit me in my home. We're pretty sure our phones are tapped some of the time. My head to my feet remains covered. Some of my friends have already been kicked out of the country. Jail is a sure threat. We lived with armed guards and we travel with their escort after dark. Rumors fly fast, and you never really know what the neighbors are thinking of you today. For sure, at least, me and my family are watched. Why do we wait to share the most life-giving words of grace with the lost? Because they're hard to get to, or even harder to live with? What do we expect from someone before they know the Lord? Do we forget that Paul himself was a murderous terrorist killing Christians? Maybe it's really that we never thought of ourselves as that sinful. We were, 
as sinful as the murderous terrorists are. I am, or I was, as lost as my hostile neighbors are. But God's gorgeous grace has saved me. I will not wait. I will share Christ and Him crucified, and I will bring His grace to my neighbors in this hated land. I will surrender myself. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For it is to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Philippians 1, 20 and 21.